think if you're really curious, you're going to be able to derive meaning and happiness and fulfillment from just about anything because your curiosity will just drive that. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Brendan Madigan, your host, and this is our final episode of season one of Afterglow. Today we sit down with rock climbing icon Tommy Caldwell. Caldwell is perhaps the most well-known and accomplished rock climber on the planet. He is best known for his recent ascent of El Capitan's Dawn Wall, a project that took him several years to complete and gained massive attention from the mainstream media and even President Obama. Tommy has also climbed 515, the hardest rock rating possible, free climbed the nose on El Cap, and is a cutting-edge alpinist. Perhaps most interesting to me is how he's done it with nine fingers, after a woodworking accident claimed his index finger, how he recovered from pushing a captor off a cliff in Kyrgyzstan while held at gunpoint, and how he believes that climbing is a metaphor for life. Tommy joined us in February of 2017 as the last speaker in our winter film series. It was an amazing show that our community still talks about nearly a year later. We were just on the receiving end of nearly five feet of fresh snow, and our boisterous, 700-deep packed house was treated with a compelling and moving show. Tommy's a pretty quiet guy, so we weren't sure what to expect. But his show possessed the perfect blend of humor, self-deprecation, and seriousness. It left our community beyond stoked. I was really impressed with what a humble person Tommy is. Even though he is the biggest pioneer in the sport of big wall free climbing, he sat at my dining room table and chatted as if we were old friends. I loved his big heart, openness, and willingness to talk about some pretty personal stuff. We talk at length about how writing a memoir added value to his life by forcing him to be completely vulnerable, his relationship with Dawnwall partner Kevin Jorgensen, and how it was a marked departure from other partnerships in his climbing career. How his upbringing allows him to view life as a constant opportunity for growth, and how he wants to be defined by his personal qualities rather than his athletic feats. We also talk at length about the formative influence of his father's energy, how having a family hasn't changed his approach to climbing, and how hardships have helped him grow as an athlete, and more importantly, as a person. You know, I knew I wanted to write a book for probably like four or five years. I wasn't really a writer by training at all, but through Climbing Rock and, I- and Rock and Ice and Alpinist magazine, I probably wrote maybe 15 or 20 you know, feature-length articles and kind of fell in love with the process through that. And I felt like it was great for my brain, but those are always you know pretty short-lived when you write an article. So I wanted to just dive in deep and take that journey. And you know, it was part learning how to write, um, but it was also part meditating on all these things in life that I just never allowed myself to really go deep on, you know, just like, I feel like I've been through a lot of stuff and it's kind of interesting. I think you let, you kind of glaze over a lot of it, but when you write a memoir, you're forced to just go real deep. And that's kind of what I was hoping for. And I think it, you know, it turned out that way. I hired my good friend, Kelly Cordes as, you know, my, my co-writer basically, but he was, yeah, we worked collaboratively really for the whole year and he became not only like my best friend, but like my therapist in the process and everything else. And um, so that part was really fun. 
I mean, every every part was great except for it was like forty hours a week for a year, which was hectic. I had to put put aside a lot of stuff in my life that I would have wanted to do otherwise. Right. Yeah, I love Kelly. He was yeah. a speaker last year. Oh, he was. Okay, yeah. Cool. He, awesome. And he's so funny. Like, I ask every speaker to sign up their shop or the poster to the event for the shop. Yep. And then he had his book too, right? And so he he left he left two books, and I think it was three or four posters, and he signed them all differently. Uh huh. But yeah. I think he wanted to get it right. You know, it was super super fun to have him. He's such an awesome human. Yeah, super um, smart guy and just yeah. a great thinker and a you know super core um, yeah. climber. Badass, great alpinist. Old school. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, a uh, little bit like uh, crotchety, which I, <laughs> I tend like. He's definitely a realist. I tend to I don't know connect with people like that for sure. Super funny too. Really funny. Yeah, yeah. and so you know when you speak because I think you've you know to write a memoir at what you're in your 30s still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah thirty eight. Yeah, massive. You've been through a ton. Yep. <laughs> of life experiences, right? You yeah, know? it seems like it. Obviously climbing and whatnot, but above and beyond that, you know. Yeah. And I think the, the compelling thing about your story is they all feed into your success, you know, and your family and, and that kind of thing. So is it, uh, it comes out in what, the spring? Yeah, I think May 16th is the scheduled um, publication date. Yeah, awesome. Or that, well, that's when it like hits the stores or whatever. Right. How did writing a book change your perspective say like on your future um you know i don't know if it changed my perspective so much i mean i think that as a as a full time like i've been obsessed and dedicated to climbing for like 20 years and you you i became reliant on that in a way like i didn't know if i could be happy without that you know i was like i have to be outside and climbing and going on these big adventures every day and i think I I felt like a little bit of a mindless monkey in a lot of ways because I mean it's 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 engaging you know climbing is you know it takes the brain it takes brain processing in some ways but not in sort of the traditional ways and I just didn't know if my brain would work in that way and honestly at first it didn't that well but you know when you sit down at a desk for like eight hours a day um you train it like a muscle and I feel like the fact that I realized in the process that I still had that capacity to do that was was great you know and and then I found it surprisingly fulfilling like I would I obsessed about it the same way I do about climbing projects. I would like, if I would go a few days without being able to write, I would get all grumpy and be like, I have to get back in there and really start working on this. And and I love that project mentality and a book is a really great way to, to dive into it. Yeah. Well, I think the, the story that you convey through your TEDx talk and the show uh, for us here, you know, for a lot of people, it's not relatable on a physical level, but it's very relate. You make it very relatable on a, uh, individual level, you know, so people can apply that to their regular life, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, I feel like I've always felt like a very normal person, you know, like in everyday life. I think a lot of people who see me in the magazines or whatever, they're like, Oh, you know, they hold these people on a pedestal. And so I get this reaction from people all the time. They're like, wow, you just seem so normal in person. And I think everybody is really, yeah. you know, <laughs> I think that's a really awesome thing about our kind of mountain tribe is everyone is just a normal person and there's yeah yeah, sure there's like ego here and there but you know you're at the tip of the spear in the you know in the climbing world and you're just a normal dude that wears your heart on your sleeve you know yeah so i think that's comes through in your speaking and and i'm sure it will in the book too i'm psyched to check it out yeah i hope so i've 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 made like a huge effort to be totally 100 percent vulnerable you know and that was uncomfortable like i'm nervous about 
people reading the book. Honestly, I'm like, well, I'm revealing stuff that I'm not totally certain I want to reveal, but to write a good memoir, I think you have to do that. And so one thing that I'd love to, to pick your brain on is, um, you know, you've, you've documented the, the craziness surrounding the Dawnwall project, right? You know, live video feeds, New York times coverage, Obama tweeting, uh, congratulations. Um, I'm a little interested and intrigued in your relationship uh, with Kevin, right? Um, have, have those, how have all those shared years and hardship, you know, shared hardship on the wall affected your relationship? Um, you know, I've, you know, I, I think I made this history of really my whole life. All my climbing partners were people that I bonded with super hardcore and were really close friends. And, you know, we were usually friends first before we'd go on big climbing trips together. And Kevin was different in that way. He was not a big wall climber. He just called me one day and was like, well, can I join you on the, on the Don wall? And I was like, well, you don't really know what you're doing, but he's, but he, I knew he was a great boulder and you know, I, I called some mutual friends and they said he was a great guy and a hard worker. So I was like, well, you know, we just started out with this idea that he was just going to come and kind of learn that world because he was interested in it. So I'd get to mentor him a little bit. And then before long, he got super obsessed. And so we had a great relationship, but personality wise, we're pretty different. Like he's very business minded. Like his, his, the whole time we're up there, he was always thinking about how is this going to affect my career? And I'm, I'm just more like wanting to have a good adventure. So it, like we never connected in that way in this where, you know, and uh, there was always this dynamic where I'm like climbing together is so great and we have so much fun, but when we're not on the wall, we don't call each other. We don't hang out. And it felt very much more like a business relationship than any other climbing partnership that I've had in my life, which has been really hard for me, honestly, a lot of the time. Like, I'm like, why is this? I'm like, this feels wrong to me to not have Kevin be my very best friend when I'm doing, when I'm having this crazy adventure with him. But I don't know, it's just uh, one of those complex human relationship things, I guess. Right. Because I've read a lot about, uh, you know, soldiers, for instance, who come back from their military tour and they've had so uh, many real experiences, life altering experiences with their compatriots. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel that comes through in our partners in, you know, skiing or climbing or what have you, um, that a lot of times, and it seems like with Alex, you have this as well, where there's, you know, those folks might come back to the real world and they have this, uh, feeling of loss, you know, and they crave that experience again. And it's a different analogy than, yeah, like you know, brotherhood. Yeah, that's total. Like, like brothers in arms, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a bad analogy for, you know, for us not, you know, actually serving the military. But I yeah. think, you know, it seems looking uh, from the outside in on your relationship with Alex and the Fitzgerald that it was there was a great dynamic there and yeah, a I mean, fun dynamic. Yeah, that's what I'm used to. I mean, I, it's funny. Like um, my wife, for instance, she has all these friends. Um, that she's close with, but she doesn't go out and do like these trips where you're together in this very intense way. They just like to get to get together for dinner or whatever. And she, she, she has this deal where if she's not constantly interacting with them, she feels like the friendship fades a little bit, which is a little bit hard for me to wrap my mind around because with my friends, like, you know, I go on an expedition with somebody and I'm like, we're friends for life. Like I cannot see him for 10 years and we come back and it's just right back where we were. And I think that has something to do with like the intensity and like going through something a little bit scary together. Um, that's what I'm used to. And that's what I love with Kevin. It was not, not totally like that for whatever reason. 
Um, I mean, I love the guy for sure. He's right. like a great friend, but he's not like the one that I call with relationship issues or things <laughs> like that. And he's more, he's more vulnerable on camera or in social media than he is in person, which is, you know, like he would, you know, all of a sudden they, they, somebody would put a camera on him and he would start talking about his friend that died. And I'm like, dude, I've been with you for the last six months. Like, why didn't you tell me about this? <laughs> you know? It's just, it's just kind of an interesting thing. I think anyone who's watched um, your TEDx talk or seen you speak, it's obvious that your father played an instrumental role in your life, right? And I'll include the, the photo of him in his bodybuilding get up, yeah. you know, that you had in your show, which is <laughs> awesome. Get up, which is not much of a get up. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about him, you know, because he's obviously a very gregarious, compelling human. Yeah. He, I mean, he's one of these guys that just like, grabs life by the horns for sure and um he was a climber from the age of 15 um but when my sister was born climbing was quite dangerous back then and he's a pretty responsible family man and he decided it was too dangerous for for a family man to climb like before cams before you know bolts were really that good he told me the story about going somewhere in yosemite and like climbing up some 510 free route and trying to pound in pins on the way and just having this experience he was like if i keep doing this i'm gonna die and i can't really be like this with uh with the daughter now so he stopped climbing he completely gave it up yeah and that's when he took a bodybuilding he has to obsess <laughs> over something and uh yeah he got into bodybuilding and went deep you know he was like i think he went from like 150 40 pounds to 220 or something like that. Just hugely jacked. And yeah, it was a pretty, it was, I think it was a pretty, pretty brief window in, in my life. Like I th when I was probably until the time I was four, he was a bodybuilder. So my very, very earliest memories are kind of like him hanging out in this backyard garage that he had built with all these, he like welded together all these um, weightlifting machines. And it was, you know, a super dirty kind of rustic, weightlifting zone but all the colorado front range guys would come there and train and so i yeah like as a four-year-old i walked back there and all these like meat heady guys walking around that was kind of like my vision of my dad when i was really a little kid it was like really like having the circus around all the time <laughs> from your show it's obvious that he his upbringing of you was ma massively formative you know I, I think you i hear you speak to it in um you know the dawn wall project for sure and you know, yeah. speaking of hardship and that kind of thing, what kind of formative effect would you kind of put it in a nutshell? He like so strongly believes that going out and like kind of having these crazy experiences is what is going to prepare you for the world. And so that was my, that was my childhood, like basically going out. We climbed Devil's Tower when I was four. We did the Lost Arrow Spire tra Tyrolean Traverse when I was like six. You know, all these things were back then. Everybody would look at my dad and think he was a total lunatic for taking his, you know, four and six-year-old on these crazy adventures. I got, you know, I have this memory of sleeping in a snow cave during this blizzard when I was like three with me and my sister. I think that he seemed really out there, but I think he, I think he, I think he's onto something, you know, like I grew to love that environment so much. And he has so much energy kind of within him that it's contagious, like still to this day. And he's a teacher too. He's also a school teacher. So he, he loves nothing more than to like make people's eyes bright up or give them a life experience is maybe a better way to put it. And sometimes he takes it too far. Like, 
I remember we went with my uncle and aunt who are, you know, much less athletic. Um, I remember one time we just went on this supposed to be a hike and it ended up being like a 18 mile, like (laughs) gnarly thinking they didn't talk to us for like a decade afterwards. (laughs) You know, we have, there's plenty of stories like that where he takes it too far. Um, but for me, it was an awesome way to grow up. It's very apparent from the way you speak to him in your shows, which is comedy too. It was really good humor. Um, how about mom? She's been, uh, you know, always around a huge support. When I was younger, she would be out there with us all the time. But she's like a little bit afraid, afraid of heights, so she didn't do the climbing thing as much. But she's the polar opposite of my dad. Like she's super tender and caring and an absolute nurturer. Um, so I had both both sides of the spectrum growing up, and I feel like I'm I'm kind of like a. I think for me, it worked out pretty well because I'm kind of in the middle. Like, I feel like I have that nurturing and really caring side that maybe my dad doesn't have so much. <laughs> but and then I also have, like, just this love of life. And so, yeah, I mean, my parents, they seem in a way like a little bit of an odd couple. Like, I look at them sometimes being like, how did this, you know, how did this happen in the beginning? Because they're so different. But they're incredibly loving, and I admire their relationship, and I admire the way they, they brought me up. Absolutely. Yeah, and you got the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. In your TEDx talk, you reference your your father's unwavering optimism and that he raised you with the mantra that parents must prepare their children for the path and not the path for their children. How was that growing up? Because I have similar upbringing, <laughs> like in the deep end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he threw, I mean, a little bit. I spoke to some of that stuff, but just these experiences of, you know, as a seven-year-old running from lightning storms, like that's kind of what I was talking about. He just yeah. kind of threw me in there. It's like, we're going to go out there and have these crazy experiences and it's gonna, you're almost going to be forced to learn how to deal. And it started with climbing, but I feel like it's, it's done quite a good job of transcending that and making me... Like, I, I've never have this fear that the, that the bottom is going to drop out. Like, I've been training how to just, like, deal with whatever happens in life all the way from the beginning. So it makes it so when I do come across hard things, I, I have, like, this warrior mentality. It, like, puts me in that mode because I learned that from a little kid. And I think that was a design of my father's. Yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. It's obviously worked. Seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I don't have anything figured out. But. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, you speak to think you call it embracing elective hardships you know i think it's compelling and a lot of people you know can take that to heart and harness that energy and use it you know yeah i mean it's exciting to me that see to see that mentality catching hold and actually being admired because when i was a kid we were just out there you know we were just kind of lunatics like yeah now people like admire the same things that they used to think you were kind of crazy for doing with your kids right yeah you said last night before it was a buzzword in parenting. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Now it's a buzzword, like the grit. Yeah. Grit. Yeah. It's like a newer word. My dad was building that without having that, that language, you know? Yeah. And we were speaking to it earlier, but you've obviously had some, some crazy hardship in your life and, and athletic career, you know, cutting off your pointer finger, the episode in Kyrgyzstan with being held at gunpoint and having to take gnarly um, action to, figure that scenario out. But even despite that, I think what was really awesome about your talk was that you still frame life as an opportunity for constant and continuous growth. Yeah. I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I don't know if that's inherent or what that is exactly that, uh, whenever, 
whenever things get tough, I kind of, like I said, I get in this warrior mode and I almost get excited about it, you know? Yeah. Like, that's what, it's part of what I seek out through climbing. I want to be put in these situations that force me to kind of rise to the next level. And uh, since I have that mentality, it makes, uh, it just makes life exciting, you know? Yeah, fully. Like um, even even parent even having kids, you can kind of you know you're like God, this is hard, but it's also like wow, this is exciting, this is challenging, and like it's an adventure and in, in a whole, you know, in, in in sort of a similar way to what I'm used to. And you probably saw people be so enthralled with the Dawnwall project, you know, because there was the media, you know, the mainstream media showing it in a certain light, and that's always fascinating to see. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure you've had countless people come to you and say, you know, well, I've had my Don Wall is X or, you know, you know, they were inspired by that because everyone has their quote unquote Don Wall, right? Yeah. Um, how, that must have been a pretty crazy experience to see that. Not so much the media stuff because um, that's for us in, in this world is kind of fluffy but, yeah. um, and weird, but for actually inspiring people yeah. through that feat. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, obviously we didn't, at least I didn't have that in mind at all with the climb. It was like, we were just going out and doing what we were doing. And maybe that's why it connected with people. You know, they're like, this is a really genuine experience of people like going all in towards trying to do something that really, that they seem to care a lot about or want really badly. And then it happened and it seemed really unlikely too. Like, I think the fact that uh, the people who were kind of watching us the whole time were like, most of them kind of gave up. They're like, we're going back to El Cap again. You know, I can't believe they're going there again. <laughs> and then it happened and they're like, whoa, all these things that I've doubted in my life. Maybe if I just kind of stick with it, it'll happen. Yeah. That's got to be pretty rewarding. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. That is rewarding. Absolutely. Like the idea that people can be inspired is, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I see that I saw that last night in the crowd. I mean, the energy, there's already tons of energy in the room, but they were there for that reason to see your adventure. Right. And these are, you know, very much doers in, in the mountains they are getting after it. And, yeah. um, there's a lot of, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen so much emotion out of Jeremy Jones in the front row, like yeah. hooting and hollering. And he was so psyched. Yeah. That's um, awesome. So that's gotta be a, a good feeling. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, especially last night, there was a lot of people in that room that I super admire and, um, have like heard about most of them. I didn't know that well, but I had heard about for years and it's cool that they show up to a, to a show and just that whole community, like brotherhood vibe is that's a, that's a great, like I'm, I get the media thing is weird for me, but it also bonds people in this other way. Like we watch these movies about each other and we get excited and then we get to meet each other. There's more excitement than there would be otherwise. So you, you have two kids, right? 10 months and... Yeah, 10 months and three and a half. Uh, Ingrid is a little girl who's 10 months old and Fitz is three and a half years old. Yeah. So how has your risk assessment or your perception of risk changed in the mountains with a family, if at all? You know, it's interesting. When I when I had our first kid, I was like, I wonder if I'm going to suddenly be scared of everything, <laughs> you know, going into the mountains, dying, you know, anything that could potentially kill me. I wonder if I, if that's going to scare me away. And it hasn't weirdly in, you know, I, I guess I realized that I've always been climbing in ways, you know, whenever I'm up in the mountains, I've never, you know, I'm always like, I'm going to do things that I'm relatively certain I'm going to live through. And so, um, I 
feel like it hasn't changed that. But retrospectively, when I come down and I realize that maybe I did push it too far, I, I ponder that way more. Like there's a huge consequence if I die um, now. And I think that does probably keep me safer. Makes me really reconsider the types of climbing that I want to do. Like I think that my natural abilities and kind of like my my keenness to suffer would really be conducive to going to big Himalayan peaks and stuff like that. I mean, I love that environment and I love expeditions, but because of kids and because of all the people that I know that have died because of snow, it's usually snow that kills everybody. Um, it makes me try to stay off, you know, big gnarly snow slopes and stay, you know, I have these things. I'm like, I'm not going to climb beneath big Syracs. I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna, um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm always going to rope up on glaciers you know, I think it, it makes me careful in those ways. But also having kids makes me value the great things about the life I lived, um, you know, in a little bit different way. Like before you have kids, maybe I took that for granted. And now I look at it differently because I'm like, I love this stuff so much. And I want my kids to, to see the beauty in it as well. It's got to be a balance, right? Because you've just done this amazing, well, of course, many amazing things, but arguably the the biggest thing you've ever done, right? The Don Juan. And then, you know, balancing that idea that, you know, I think I've heard you say we only truly find our ultimate capacity when we push ourselves against the limit. Like, so that's a huge part of who you are as a person and an athlete, right? And then balancing that with a family. It's got to be a, a tightrope. Yeah. I mean, you want to show them how to be really passionate about something. And so pushing hard towards a goal is like a way to do that. But you got to be there enough to, be <laughs> to teach them. Yeah, to teach them and to show them also that you that you care more about them or you care as much about them as you do about yourself. It's weird. I always like to, when I talk about with my wife all the time. I was like, I want the kids to know that I love my wife way more than I love them. Like they need to know their place in this world. I think that's more healthy. But you got to also let them know that you love them way more than rock climbing. That's for sure. Right. Um, so. It is a bit of a hard act, and I think we're, you know, we're always trying to find that balance, and I'm sure I, I blow it sometimes on both ends of the spectrum. But, yeah, I mean, pretty much what we do now is we try and go on these trips where the family comes for, like, two-thirds of the time, and then maybe they go home, like, a week early, and that's my time to super mission in the mountains, and and then they get the travel experience, and, yeah, we're, we're all figuring it out, though. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, it's got to be cool, too, you know, because I think you could look at it as a quantity versus quality standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can, maybe the amount of time that you're climbing maybe has changed or is different, but you still have that, which so far outweighs any loss of climbing, right? Of your family, it far outweighs that. Yeah, no, I, I think that I, I crave time with my family these days more than I crave climbing time. But I still need the climbing time to create balance. And so I just make that super productive. You know, I'm like, okay, I've got this week or this hour or whatever. And I head out the door and every minute counts. And it's kind of cool to live that way, honestly. Yeah. Like, I didn't live that way as much before I had kids. Yeah. Yeah, maximizing it. Yeah. Yeah, I think back to my 20s and how much time I had on my hands. and Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think, too, you know, once you're in a position in life that you've never been in before it's so instructional and a lot of times it's so rewarding in ways that you would never imagine that it kind of outpaces what your passions have been or maybe not outpaces, but just adds to those and makes it a more well-rounded life and more, you know, kind of 
for me anyway, as a business owner, right? Like, um, I find myself telling people, yeah, I like running my business or putting on these events as much as I like skiing pow. Some people look at me like I'm fucking cross-eyed, <laughs> yeah. which they're probably right to some degree, you know, <laughs> but it's just uh, that's my position in life, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I feel like for the longest time I was very accomplishment-focused. Like, I would make these goals and I was like, I want to do this, and I don't know if that was... Like, a part of it was that I liked the the process of trying to get there, but a, um, a bigger... I think, uh, and, you know, a really honest part of it was I wanted to be successful, and I think once I have kids, I'm like, you know, accomplishing things or being successful just seems way less important. As long as you can like financially make it work with your family, that's important. But it's like I almost see those as distractions. Now it's just purely about experience and about setting an example and about kind of just like living the most like full life possible. And I don't I care very much. I, I care way less about what other people would think about that now that I have kids. Right. Yeah. And it's obviously that you love your family in spades, right? The pictures, mm-hmm. you know, are, are awesome. And, yeah. um, I think it's a beautiful thing and you've got a lot of years left, right? Yeah. They're For young. sure. Yeah. I got a young family. <laughs> well, no, and you're, and you're young in the grand uh, scheme yeah. of things, right? Like yeah. you've got a lot of years, you, you know, behind you, but way, way more ahead of you too. So, yeah. I mean, if you were to fast forward, you know, and you're old and in the rocking chair or whatever, how do you want to be remembered? You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I tend to, yeah, I don't know. I don't think about that really. Yeah. And I think, I think it can be like, you can flip it and say, well, if I do want to be remembered for something like my ego needs a check, you know? Yeah. I think that I've, I think I'm striving to like, I think if I have to answer that question, it's more, I want, I want people to like, I don't want to be defined by an event, you know, I'd rather be defined by like a quality and so I think I'm, you know, trying to be more loving and thoughtful and intentional and caring and, the, you know, those kind of things. That's what I'm trying to veer in the attention and also just bring less attention to me. Like it has been about me a little too much. That was the hardest part about writing a book is it's, you know, memoirs like you meditate on your own story for so long. And I'm absolutely sick of that. <laughs> Actually, I don't want it to be about me anymore. Yeah. And I, th- I think you'll always be, you know, rock climber of Donwall fame, right? That's inevitable. But I think what I see out of you, like you're a very humble, normal person and you wear your heart on your sleeve and you can tell you love your family to death, you know, yeah. not only your kids and your wife, but the way you speak about your, your father, you know, is, is rad. Yeah. Um, and I, I have this feeling that, you know, that that's what it's about, you know, like ultimately, you know, those, cause I think you derive happiness from experiences and relationships, right? Yeah. It'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah. For me, like the goals are just at this point, they're like a mechanism to sort of motivate or to re- or to direct. Right. But I actually hate the idea of like having to reach those goals. Right. Which is way different than kids coming up now. Right. Yeah. Climber kids are su- uber focused on pushing the needle. Right. Yeah. And I think I was too, you know, when I was younger, like I was, you know, you quantify your climbing worth off of, you know, beating somebody in a competition or climbing a harder number grade or whatever, which I think you probably, you, maybe you have to go through that. Maybe that's actually a healthy thing to do as a, a child because you just don't go quite as deep into the thought process. Maybe you shouldn't. Um, but as you mature, it is, it is good to like move the focus a little bit. Right. Towards yeah. the heart, I would say. Yeah. Well, and I liked about your show too, you're so self-deprecating, you know, 
coming up with Chris Sharma and climbing with him and arguably in his shadow in some ways, you know, yeah. and then coming so far. And I'm sure you were sending on a very comparable level, but it was great how you categorized it, you know, right. and, and spoke to it. I thought that was awesome. But, yeah. um, you know, then using that as motivation, I'm sure. And then, you know, I can see that grit, you know, coming through. Yeah. It's pretty rad. If you couldn't climb, like, where's the fulfillment come from? <clears throat> you know, for a while I was worried that I wouldn't be able to find fulfillment. Like if I became paralyzed or something, I couldn't have climbing. I thought I'd get really depressed, but I don't think that anymore. I think that climbing taught me to find Stoke and tell so many things. And I don't know exactly where it'd be because I'm still very climbing focused. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, writing a book, like I was like, man, if I didn't have climbing, I could see doing this. I could see, you know, like going deeper and trying to become really good at this or, you know, I meet you through the TEDx talks and stuff like meet scientists and people who are just so fascinated by that world. Like I've built a lot of curiosity, which I don't think I used to have. And I think that's the driver. You know, I think if you're really curious, you're going to be able to derive meaning and happiness and fulfillment from just about anything because your curiosity will just drive that. And curiosity obviously drives your initiatives climbing. Yeah. Yeah. Like now it does. Like it used to be more about like proving my, my worth, but now it's like, you know, how far can I take this physically or how far can I take it mentally or, you know, explore like the, my whole evolution on El Cap was hugely invigorating because I was like, I felt whether it was true or not that I was like redefining a game. Like I was almost inventing a sport in a way. And I was, you know, coming up with all these systems and living up there for longer than free climbers had and doing all these things in this new way. And I, was, I felt like an explorer, you know, it was like my, it was my chance to be like Shackleton in my little world or something like to just discover something that um, is just slightly different in my own little niche. And I loved that. That was probably the most fulfilling part. Yeah. And I'm assuming, you know, that's because that's so cutting edge, that sport. There's got to be tons of future opportunity, whether it's for you or the ne the folks coming that'll stand on your shoulders. Yeah, I feel like climbing as a sport is really in, in its infancy right now. And I feel like it's, it's almost at an inflection point. I think it's just been kind of growing slowly. But in the past few years, maybe even, it's just started to explode in popularity, which is going to bring some more people into it, which is going to in some ways be bad. But in other ways, it's going to bring a lot more ideas and a lot more inspiration and just like the science of it is going to get worked out just because there's so many more resources. And I'm pretty excited to see that. Like I'm going to be, I like, I think when I'm an old man sitting in the re wheel wheelchair, I'm totally going to be one of those guys. That's like an Uber climber fan. Yeah. Drinking it in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm astounded by just the training regimens that yeah. I see, you know, cause Emily's a, a great friend of ours and to see her climb golden gate and, you know, get throttled in the process, yeah. you know, speaks to the magnitude of what, what you accomplished. Um, but her training, and then she, she talks to the training of these kids in, in the gym who are coming up climbing as if they were playing youth soccer or youth, youth baseball. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. No, I mean the thing that brought the Donwell to the end for me was looking at the kids and figuring out what they were doing and applying it to my life. Like I was, you know, Chris Sharma actually almost set me 
astray in a way because he didn't think about training at all. He just like smoked weed and went out and tried <laughs> hard. And I was like, oh yeah, it's just about having fun and trying hard, you know? And I had to almost unlearn that like by like bringing it down to the science, like working on the freaking hangboard with the stopwatch and learning about like, you know, neuromuscular synchronization, you know, just like getting all in, into the science and figuring out what actually works, what makes that happen. And that was fun, you know, in a, in, a, in a certain way. I found that stuff really fascinating, which is, I, I got into it partially because that's what my dad did by bodybuilding too. But I was, I was like, yeah, that's, you know, he's my dad. I wasn't going to listen to him in that way, but I eventually did. And ha- I mean, obviously with Andra repeating the Dawn Wall, yeah. like that's got to be crazy one. I mean, do you find yourself saying, you know, man, I got to figure out an, another initiative or... Are you well, and probably both psyched to see the next wave, right? Of what they're gonna do. Yeah, I mean, I'm super psyched to see the next wave. Uh, honestly, when I, when he was climbing it, I was, I was like, wished that it would take it him like another year. <laughs> first big wall. Yeah, first right. big wall. I freaking un- unbelievable. But it speaks to that, like he's been trained specifically from you know a really small child to climb really well. And, you know, I mean, for God's sake, on site's harder than I've ever climbed in my life. Um, but his ability to adapt and it was shocking up there on El Cap and, and his av- ability to just try so freaking hard and be like a warrior, like just watching that whole thing go down. I was riveted because, and he was, he was like going to the death you know, all the time and like his ability to just do that and love that was, um, just unbelievably impressive yeah and so in some ways i was pretty shocked by how quick he did it but other and otherwise i was like it just makes sense i mean he's dominated all of climbing every aspect and so who's to say that he wouldn't do the same on big walls yeah he's a seemingly a a mutant yeah it's like he's he's an outlier at this point i would say right in a way i mean he's like i'm you know i went up on there with chris sharma and jonathan segrist and some of the best climbers out there you know and they didn't they didn't have it, you know, they didn't have all the right qualities. Like they may be maybe really, really talented, but they didn't have the ability to suffer or the love of it or something. And he just has it all. Right. Crazy. It's cool. Yeah. It'd be fun to watch what he does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he's super young. I mean, you know, he's like 20 years old. Or something. <sighs> Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm psyched to read the book, particularly if it's kind of a, you know, true memoir where you're, you know, being vulnerable because that's hard to do. And I don't think a lot of people are, willing to do it. So yeah. Kudos. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah. I mean, a- I, I, I went, I went deep. Like if anything, I probably went too deep and had to, had to, uh, ease back a little bit in the end. Like I think for a long period of the writing process, I would sit down every day and just like spill my soul and just throw it all out there without self-consciousness. Um, like from everything from like, anger to love to heartbreak to you know total motivation i just tried to get it all out there and then i had to mold it and um you know get it just right in the end but um yeah i think people will be happy with the yeah i had Krakauer read it for instance like he was a critical reader and that was the one thing he said he's like i really admire your your willingness to be absolutely vulnerable and do you feel like you know because the dude from Kyrgyzstan lived, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Did you find yourself, you know, maybe like writing that book as a 
coping mechanism or a healing device or exploration into your own persona? Yeah, I mean, I think the very first part of the book that I wrote and part of the reason that I wanted to write it was like the Kyrgyzstan stuff and specifically the scene where I like pushed this dude off the cliff. I sat down and I was like, this is a part of my life that is so just like grand in my mind and overwhelming that I haven't even gone there. You know, I haven't let myself process this and I want to do it. And so I sat down and I wrote that stuff and I wrote it all out and I just went deep and yeah, I guess I just processed it for the first time ever. And it was really emotional. You know, I would be up there like behind my keyboard, like just being emotional, which surprised me a little bit. Right. Yeah. It was really, like, there was definitely times writing the book where I was like, everybody should do this. You know, everybody should take the time to sit down and like meditate on their lives in this deep of a way. Um, I don't know if everybody should write a book, but <laughs> some mechanism to do that is a good thing. Right. It's ultimate reflection. Yeah. Right. Into yourself. Yeah. I think it's healthy for a time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, th- I think it was fascinating too, you know, in the front end of your TED talk, I think you're asking the question, you know, I was put in a certain position and it was a crazy situation. I might've had one reaction to it, which steered me down a certain path, but someone else can have a completely different reaction to that whether it was the folks with you there or, you know, another scenario for someone else. Mm. And I think that's a pretty powerful question asking that, you know, not only why, but how, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea. I've actually worked with some military stuff in the future. And like when people go through really crazy stuff like that, there's people that, that experience like this post-traumatic stress and it makes their lives really hard. And then there's like the the other side, like the post-traumatic growth. And I feel like that's, for whatever reason, like that's the direction I went. Like that was a coming of age moment that built me into the person I am today. I don't feel like there's a lot of after effects that have made life harder because of that. I feel like it's the opposite. And I don't know why that is, honestly. I mean, maybe it was, maybe it was my dad, maybe it was my family, maybe it was my upbringing, but maybe it was something inherent. I wanted to try and figure that out. And I don't know if I was totally successful writing the book, but I definitely dive into it. Right. It's kind of classic fight or flight psychological response, right? Yeah. And I think maybe, I think upbringing is paramount to any of us, right? Mm-hmm. We're a function of where we come from and who, who's influenced us. But then to, to be put in that position and, and see where, what direction you go in is, is pretty telling. And then to actually have the wherewithal to reflect on it and ask why. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, other people on that trip, like, didn't, like, they had a lot more trouble afterwards psychologically, and I wonder sometimes if, like, the fact that I was able to do something, like, it was pretty empowering, you know, in a way, and maybe that's made it easier, like, the road afterwards easier for me. Right. Yeah, I would think undoubtedly, right, because I see that, that mantra that you were raised with, right, and then you have all these crazy hardships, you know, that experience, you know, severing your finger, Mm -hmm. but I think, you know, like you say, it's all an opportunity for growth hardship can suck yeah but it's so instructional and if you can harness it for a positive i think like you say it's extremely empowering yeah nowadays when things happen that are hard in life i don't know if i said this already but i get excited about it in this kind of weird way yeah (laughs) sometimes yeah yeah like part of me will be devastated if it's really devastating but then there's like another side of me both can happen simultaneously i think you if you were raised as an athlete or playing sports that i think a lot of that's inherent in you Mm -hmm. taught to you so it's got to be cool to see it come through and help you in these crazy climbing initiatives you know yeah do you see that in others in like at the top end of the of the sport oh yeah i think a lot of people 
I mean, I think in general, people just don't have any idea of how well they can perform because I think that, you know, I think for the most part, we're all operating at like 50% most of the time, you know, but until you really have to step up. And I think most people actually do step up when they have to. It's just built into our genes. Right. Yeah. And I think you see a, a lot of that in someone like Kelly, right? Or these classic old school or Dave Nettle, you know, old school hard men, alpinists who have done some amazing things well before their time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they could suffer and use it to their benefit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these like, I mean, alpine climbing is amazing. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about it is it forces you to a new level of living, you know? And like, it's, it's a heightened experience. Um, that's both informative, but maybe a little bit addicting and sometimes in a bad way, you know, like you get too addicted. (laughs) Like if you, if you experience it for some people, it's hard to live the rest of the life without, with that knowledge that it could be better. And so they go back into the mountains and they go back into the mountains and then they eventually die. And so you got to be a little careful. Right. Do you have regrets? I do. <laughs> I could say that. I, open, but I, I probably do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I could, I could go... Like, my failed marriage is something that was really hard on me, and um, I think I, I wish I was way smarter way earlier in life, you know? Um, so there's that. And, you know, a lot of it surrounds that. Like, actually, during that period of my life, my relationship with my dad broke down a little bit, too, for a brief period of time. And I, like, wrote this letter that basically revealed the fact that I thought that a lot of, you know, I got, you know, at this really hard place in my life, I told him that I thought that he had kind of screwed me up in certain ways. And I was wrong for writing that letter. So I have, you know, just like little moments like that. I think if you allow yourself to go that deep and really think about it, it's, it's hard for anybody to be like, oh, no, I did everything perfectly. <laughs> you know? He's lying. So, yeah. 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 I think it's fascinating, too, because, you know, the parental relationship, right? And you, I think if you have the wherewithal to say, you know, maybe I, I could have done something differently or better or fucked that up, you know. But again, it's just we're all on the path, right? And no one's perfect. We're all a train wreck in some way, shape, or form as humans. Yeah. I know with my dad, I was always very embarrassed, but he's just so gregarious and outgoing and he just like loved to make an impression on people in a way that just embarrassed the heck out of me as a little kid. And he loved me, you know, he loved to use me as a mechanism to make an impression on people. And now I'm like, I like to give people life experiences. You know, I like to bring people up on OCAP and, and scare them to death so that they're going to remember this. You know, I'm like, oh, that's so my dad. Right. Classic. <laughs> It's yeah. true, though, because I think the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But I think there's a lot, even though relationships, whether whatever, whether it's family or friends, <clears throat> they can have hurdles or rough patches. But like to your point of hardships, you can always use that yeah. if you frame it in the right way as a positive yeah. for learning or like, yeah, maybe I had a failed marriage, but my next one's fucking awesome. Yeah, and I wouldn't say every hardship can probably happen. You know, you can frame it in a positive way. Like, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to have ones that hit that sweet spot. They help, they grow, they help me to grow, but they don't crush me completely. Yeah, which is nice of the, the world. Yeah. <laughs> kind of that. It's been kind in that way. Invisible, invisible hand of life. Tommy, it was great to have you, man. Um, you paid our community a huge favor. And we're super grateful. The energy in that room is tangible. I'm super proud of the event. So to sit in the back of the room and 
watch you give a show to six or seven hundred of the raddest people that I've met in one spot is rewarding. So thank you for coming, you know, and, and we'll thank Brian Cole because he's the man for making it making it happen yeah. and taking time out of your busy life, you know, um, when you're on Ellen and CBS morning show and, and you can come to the Album Glow Winter Film Series. We're pretty stoked. So. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was a really like invigorating event. So it was, it was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I mean, as hate as, as much as I dislike being a public face in some ways, I also really love to do what I can to spread the stoke, you know, the energy. And that, that event felt like that to the T. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so that was great. Well, everybody, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed season one of Afterglow. These conversations have been an emotional exploration for both myself and our guests. The motivation for Afterglow was twofold. One, we knew there was a tremendous opportunity to chat on a deeper, insightful, and one-on-one basis with our Winter Film Series speakers. And two, my illness made me seek meaning on a deeper level. I've found this in part through these conversations, and I can't thank you enough for listening. When we set out on this journey, we wanted to ask important questions, deeper questions that elicited insightful answers about life. It's my hope that you've enjoyed listening and that our conversations have revealed some lessons that you can incorporate in your own life's journey. We've got some really fun stuff for you in season two that you don't want to miss. Make sure to subscribe and spread the good word to your friends. This episode was produced by myself and Kristen Hanna, who also edited the episode. It was recorded in February of 2017 at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Our sound engineer is Luke Funicella, who also provides us with our music. Check him out on SoundCloud and show him some love. Right on.